Let's pray. Father, we are grateful tonight that you've given us another opportunity, another time to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. You said, Lord, that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but to encourage one another and more so as we see the day approaching. It is evident, Father, as we look around the secular world as well as the Christian world, that evil resides even near the throne of God. And so, Father, we pray that we might learn from Your Word as Your Holy Spirit brings it home to our hearts that ways in which to please You and walk after You. We pray, Father, that You will help us understand this book, that we could take a firm evaluation of our lives tonight to see where we fit into its truths. In Jesus' name, amen. This book, as we have seen, is a book of encouragement and a book of alarm. He's ringing the bell. He's letting people know that evil times are upon them and they ought to watch and be wary. We've given this book the name, The Acts of the Apostates. Not the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Apostates which is a word that means one who will fall away from the faith, which was predicted in the Scripture. In the last days, many will fall away from the faith and give heed to deceiving spirits or doctrines of demons. There is a spiritual defection that can take place. I'm not just speaking about backsliding because we can all do that from time to time and probably we all do it from time to time. But there is a spiritual defection, a turning back on the things of Christ, either due to sin or to false teaching, heresy that comes in the church. And this was the case, of course, both were the reasons why Jude writes this letter, because both of these things were happening. Jesus made the prediction that he would build his church, which is something I've always enjoyed. I've loved that little phrase. Jesus said, I will build my church because that takes the pressure off me. You see, I don't have to do it. It's not my job to build his church. It's just my job to do what God has called me to do, to teach the word of God. And the Lord added daily, it says in the book of Acts, those who were being saved. But he also predicted that there would be tares among the wheat. And he also said, watch, be on your guard. And so we are to walk in the Spirit, which means make spiritual progress, not veg out in the Spirit, not cruise amatic in the Spirit, but we have to make solid, definite steps of progress and at the same time have a little discernment, be wary, be watchful because of spiritual defection. I'd like to read something that I've shared with you before when we were in the book of Acts, but this is a prediction that Paul the Apostle made to a church in the New Testament, the church of Ephesus, a growing church. And you see, we ought to take heed to these things because we're a growing church. And God has blessed this fellowship. And I look over the last 10 years and I marvel at what God has done and what God is doing through our lives. But that doesn't mean that We can just sit back now and say, oh, great. Hey, look, God has done a neat work, so we're okay. We'll always be okay. Paul the Apostle, when he was leaving the church that he founded, took the elders of Ephesus on the shores 
He began to weep because they would see his face no more, and he uttered these things to them. He said, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to the grace of God, to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Jesus even asked a question that's kind of puzzled me a little bit, scared me. He said, when the Son of Man returns, will He find faith upon the earth? Or literally, will He find the faith upon the earth? A frightening kind of a question. Well, when Jude sat down to write this 25-verse letter, He originally wanted to just encourage them. You know, it's a lot easier to write a letter of encouragement. It's a lot easier to slap a person on the back and go, Go for it. God's with you. We love you. Hope you're doing well. But he said, I tried to do that. But there was something on my heart so heavy that I was restrained from doing that. He says that in verse 3. I wanted to write about the common salvation. But I thought it necessary to write. exhorting you to contend or put up a fight for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. I hope you've read through this book because you have seen then that it is one of the most severe messages in the New Testament. They're hard-hitting words. He reminds us, as you read through it, that we're soldiers, that the Christian Christian life is not a playground, but a battleground. And that we really have to watch. We live in a very critical, strategic period of time. Not just politically and socially and economically, but spiritually. I believe with all my heart we are living in what the Bible describes as the last days the end of time before God brings to a close His prophetic calendar. I know that because Jesus said we ought to watch and be ready for some of these things and look, and when they begin to happen, look up, because then your redemption draws near. Every time I read the newspaper or Newsweek, I was reading Newsweek today, actually, and as I was reading some of the things, and hopefully in the next couple of weeks we want to give you an update on some of these things, prophetically. I couldn't help but think, Man, I'm glad I read this book first. Because now I know what's happening. If I were to read Newsweek first and not know this book, man, I'd be frightened. I'd be so scared. I'd think, what's the use? It's just getting worse. But as I read this book, especially at the end, you know, my teacher always told me the answers are in the back of the book. And as I read the book of Revelation and I see Jesus coming from the clouds with great glory and power, I think, all right. But until then, we're living in days that aren't just filled with expectation, but they're frightening days. Listen to what Peter said in the Amplified Version. Be well-balanced, be temperate, be sober-minded, Be vigilant, 
and cautious at all times. For the enemy of yours, the devil, roams around like a lion, roaring in fierce hunger, seeking someone to seize upon and devour. He's looking for you. That's kind of frightening, isn't it? Wouldn't it be frightening to be Peter and have Jesus put his arm around you and say, I want to tell you something, Satan's been asking for you lately. He's been coming around, knocking on the door. Is Peter around? Jesus said he wants to sift you as wheat. But Peter, I've prayed for you. God, I'm glad you shared that. Thank you. He's looking for whom he may devour. And the enemies aren't always on the outside of the church. They come inside the church like the old saying goes, if you can't beat them, join them. And that's the reason he writes this epistle. Now, we've already covered almost all of verse 1. We quit at the Father, period, or uh, comma, and we didn't cover and preserved in Jesus Christ. So let's just kind of go through verse 1 and verse 2, finish where we stopped and finish the whole second verse tonight. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and the brother of James to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. The first description of the saints that he writes to is that they are called, which as we discovered last time is a word that means summoned or called upon to serve or to share in a responsibility, a duty. God has called you, not just to be happy, though he wants to make you happy, But the means to that is that you are called into His service. He said that what are we to seek first? The kingdom of God. And all of these things will be added to you. Jesus said, keep your priorities. You take care of the kingdom. That is, you seek first the kingdom. You make sure that people are in the kingdom, that you preach the kingdom, and I'll take care of you. I'll give you all the clothes you need, all the food you need, but you seek first my kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. So we are summoned to not build up our own kingdoms, but to keep His kingdom first and foremost. Secondly, the word called can mean called to a feast, to a celebration. And you know, that's one of the things I loved about our worship tonight. We had a blast. Dennis was playing all those tunes and doing all those jams. I thought, that's great. And you know, getting together as Christians ought to be a blast. It is. Worshiping God is a, it's fun. It's invigorating. I grew up in a church where every week it was not invigorating. In fact, it was flat boring. I begged my parents not to take me, but they told me that I'd go to hell if I didn't go. So, you know, can't argue with that one. It ought to be joyful. You're summoned to a celebration, called to a feast, called to have a great time in the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said, Why should Christians be such happy people? It is good for our God because it gives Him honor among men when we are glad. It is good for us because it makes us strong. It is good for the ungodly when they see Christians glad, they long to be believers themselves. And it's good for our fellow Christians. It comforts them and tends to cheer them. That's true, isn't it? It's contagious, that kind of joy. And especially among unbelievers. Would you want to be a Christian if somebody witnessed to you and just frowned and... Let me tell you the bad news. You're going to go to hell. Oh, really? I'm just really drawn by your... Wow, your lifestyle, your love. I just want to be like you. 
bummed out. There ought to be a joy. In fact, Charles Spurgeon used to tell his students in the ministry, he said, when you speak of heaven, your face should light up. And when you speak of hell, your normal face will do. But when you speak of glory, you make sure that you have a light in your eyes. We are called, and the word also means we are summoned not only to a feast, not only to service, but summoned to judgment. It is used oftentimes in the Greek language to talk about a person going to court. All of us will stand before judgment seat of Christ one day. If you're an unbeliever, you'll stand before the great white throne judgment where sentence will be passed because you didn't accept Christ as your Savior and you'll be banished. If you are a Christian, you will stand before the reward seat of Christ for the things that you do now, the way you serve the Lord now, the diligence with which you apply yourself in service to Him, the motivations with which you do it, you will be judged. doesn't mean you'll be judged to go to heaven or to go to hell. That's done. You're past judgment because you've accepted Christ. The Bible tells us that in the book of John. But you will stand before Him in reference to your rewards or lack thereof. And the Bible says some of us will save, be saved as though through fire. In other words, we're just going to barely make it. Just kind of like, whew, wow, got singed a little bit, but at least I'm in. I don't want to go there that way, do you? Peter said, let's look for an abundant entrance. Man, I want the trumpets going. I want the red carpet rolled out. I want to make sure that I can serve the Lord now in such a way that I don't get all my rewards here, but that I get Him up there. And so we're called to stand before Him in judgment, all of us. Then he says we're sanctified or set apart, which the same word saints refers to that. You are set apart for God's service. And you know it's true. God takes you... And as soon as you come to Christ, He calls you a saint. That doesn't mean you act like one. But you are one. It's a position, not a perfection that you attain to. There's actually two classes of people, saints and ain'ts. No in between. You're either one or you're not. And God takes you the way you are and pronounces you holy, but then He changes you to become sanctified. So that, as a Christian today, you should be able to look back from whence you came and say, you know, I've grown. I'm changing. It's been said quite often. In fact, from this pulpit, God loves you the way you are, but loves you too much to leave you that way. He'll take you and He'll mold you and He'll change you into something else. So you're called and you're sanctified. And then finally he says, and preserved in Jesus Christ, which is a word that means carefully watched and guarded. God takes you, God changes you, and then he watches out for you. You're guarded, you're preserved. It's the same word that Jude uses also in verse 6. Notice, the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own habitation, he has reserved. It's the same Greek word as preserved. But they are reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Look over in verse 21. The word is used. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Same word, keep, preserve. It's also used in verse 24. Now unto Him who is able to keep you 
or preserve you, keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. I am convinced that the reason Jude was instructed by the Holy Spirit to use this word preserved so often is that it would comfort those Christians who were living in a time when Christians were fallen by the wayside, times of apostasy, times of falling away, would encourage those because they would be wondering, am I going to make it? Am I going to be like so-and-so who's fallen away and now is not walking with Christ any longer? And they'd start to get worried And Jude is saying that the angels are preserved for judgment. You are preserved through this life and preserved for glory. That would comfort them. That would give them hope. Today, we also live in apostasy, as we have said. People are falling away. New doctrines are coming into the church. And at the introduction to this study, we named some of them in the Old Testament and the New Testament and counterparts to them now. We're living in those days. How long the Lord will let the apostasy continue until the rapture of the church, I'm not certain. But God knows those who are His. And God will preserve those who are His. It says in Psalm 1, it says there's the righteous and the ungodly, basically paraphrased. And blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of the scornful. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Then it says the ungodly are not so. But they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. They shall not stand before the Lord in judgment. In other words, they will fall. They won't be able to stand the test because they are not preserved in Christ Jesus. But He knows you. He's chosen you. He's called you. He's sanctified you. And He has preserved you. You're preserved. You're pickled until that time. J. Vernon McGee in his commentary speaks about this and he says, you know, I've noticed, of course, he's speaking years ago. He says there's two ways to preserve food, through vinegar and through sugar. He says a lot of times Christians are like that. Oh, they're preserved for future glory, but they're like vinegar Christians. I mean, they have no joy, no life, no spunk. I mean, they'll get to heaven, but with not a smile on their face, but the doldrums. Then there are those who are preserved in sugar. But actually, I like the idea of being preserved in salt because the Bible says that we have to be the salt of the earth and let our speech be full of grace, seasoned with salt. We're preserved in Christ Jesus. God is able to keep you. I know there are times when you doubt that. You wonder if you're going to make it. A young lady came to me several years ago. She was 15 years old. It was at the other building, and she ran up to me, and she said, I need to talk to you. I said, sure, let's talk. She goes, I don't think I can make it. I don't think I can stay a Christian. I said, why? She says, the peer pressure at school, the temptations, they're so hard. I'm so close to falling, I don't think I'm going to make it. I can't stand. I said, well, you can stand if you want to stand, and if you want to fall, you can fall. But if you commit yourself to the Lord and draw near to Him, He'll draw near to you, and you'll have all the strength. You won't know what to do with it all. She goes, I don't know. I saw her two months later. She said the same thing. We prayed for her. She made it. She was going to the secular schools here, the public schools, and then she enrolled in uh, a private school called the Academy, a place where her faith was challenged even more than the public school. And she had to make a defense for the faith week after week in her philosophy classes and 
And she said, man, I don't know if I can make it. These guys are intellectually above me. Before it was just peer pressure. Now it's this intellectualism in my high school, this public, this private school. Well, she made it. And then she went to a Christian college out in Southern California, so-called Christian college, liberal apostate Christian college. And she found that this college challenged her faith more than the public school or a private high school. And they were shooting down and knocking her faith. She calls, I don't think I can make it. Don't worry, you'll make it. And we'd pray and we'd talk and then she graduated. God is able to preserve you. He's able to keep you. And He doesn't want to remove you to keep you. He wants to keep you in the midst of it. The easy way out is just to remove yourself from it. But listen to what Jesus said in the Gospel of John. He prayed, Father, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. See, Jesus prayed for preservation, not isolation. He didn't want them removed from it. The idea that people had in the church years later when they said, for us to be holy, we have to build monasteries and convents and isolate ourselves from the common people. Jesus said, Lord, don't let that happen to my people. I just pray that you preserve them, not isolate them. Keep them from the evil one. I read an article a couple years ago, I think I have in my study, where these Christians got together and planned a Christian village, a Christian community, seeing the violence, the crime, the value systems of our society. They thought the only way to make it is to have Christian housing and Christian stores and just a whole little village and community filled with Christians. Now, at first, that sounds a little bit appealing, doesn't it? To be able to go down to the video store and have decent material, good books, the absence of pornography, But it is the design of our Lord that we will be next to the unbeliever. Next to the filthy mouth who cusses. Next to the person who's mocking Christ. Next to the pornographer. That we by our light might lead them out of darkness. Lord, don't take them from this world. Preserve them. When Jude said, you are preserved. You're called, you're sanctified, and you're preserved. Now verse 2. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now that sounds like a common greeting, and indeed it was. Most people, when they wrote letters, began by using their name at the beginning rather than at the end, like we write letters, and they would have a common greeting like grace and peace to you. Paul did that all the time. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. But this is different, not only in the choice of words, But it's the idea that it will be not added but multiplied. In other words, there should be an increasing development of these attributes in our lives. And because it's written this way, we want to just spend the next 30 minutes as we close out our study on verse 2. Those three things, and they follow one another. Mercy, which will lead to peace, which will lead to the experience of love among the brothers. First of all, mercy, which means literally compassion or pity. One New Testament scholar said this word means the emotion aroused by contact with an affliction, which is what all the Greek authors agreed with. In fact, Aristotle said, tragedy arouses mercy. Folks, misery and mercy go together. A person who's miserable 
needs to be touched by someone who has mercy. And God has done that to us. It's been extended to us. You have a disease. I have a disease. Sin. Humanity has fallen. In God's pity and compassion and mercy, He's touched the affliction of mankind and He saved us. That's what the word basically means. We need mercy because we have that affliction. I never ask God for justice. And I love it. You know, Jude Jude didn't say, justice to you. Well, I'd start shaking. There's never been a time in my life when I've said, God, give me what I deserve. I'd be a fool to do that. Because I deserve God's punishment, God's judgment, God's wrath. Because all have sinned, including moi, and fallen short of the glory of God. I always ask for mercy. I use His mercy. It's abundant, and therefore I use a lot of it. I never say, God, now you know that I'm like this and I'm a man of it. You just give me what I do. There's no way. I heard of a politician who had pictures taken of himself and the proofs got back to him. He looked them over and he was so infuriated with the photographer, he came back, threw them down and says, these pictures don't do me justice. The guy said, with a face like yours, you don't need justice. You need mercy. (laughs) Well, with a life like mine, I don't need justice. I need mercy. As I stand before the Lord, that's what I ask for, and I'm glad that it's abundant. Mercy is an attribute of God, folks. And I've got to share something because there's a news article that was given to me. Mercy is an attribute of God, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. There's this weird thinking going around that the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament was this kind of namby-pamby, hold the children, God of mercy, very different from the Old Testament. And yet as I read the Bible, that's very wrong. I read a God of mercy in the Old Testament and justice. And I read Jesus who loved people yet overturned tables in the temple and whipped people. And I see them very close. Justice but tempered with mercy. But there was a news article given by our own, I think it was written in the Albuquerque Tribulation, But it says, Old Testament God and Jesus differ vastly. Let me read some of it to you. On several occasions when I've read this column, I've come across letters advising doubters and dissenters that they had better refer to the Bible and see how God wants us to live and act. I did, and by merely scanning, that was his first problem. Through the Old Testament, I realized that it's this is quite possible that we as a society with all of our faults and misgivings have risen above the God of the Old Testament and that Jesus and God espouse two opposing philosophies concerning humanity. If one were to look closely at the Bible, one would find that God encourages and promotes slavery, which has been abolished by most societies. He doesn't consider it a miscarriage due to an injury caused by another serious offense. While, let me go down. It doesn't make sense that if Jesus and God are indeed one and the same that Jesus and the same that Jesus' message should be in many instances radically different from God's. As we know, Jesus taught us to love one another, including one's enemies, to forgive each other's sins and to realize that his message is intended for all who choose to listen, not for a select few. I am convinced Not only that when Jesus says, My Father, He is not addressing Yahweh. 
but that the latter, if he indeed exists with his desire to dominate and intimidate and in some cases eliminate, sounds like a preacher actually, is the embodiment of the lack of spirituality that has plagued Western society to this day. Now there's a person who scanned through the Bible and says the God of the Old Testament and Jesus are vastly different. Well, consider Nineveh. God said, Jonah, go speak to Nineveh. Tell them in 40 days they're toast. He didn't do it. Finally, God got his attention. Being down in the mouth for a few days, woke him up, and he went to Nineveh. He preached judgment, a message he really liked. When the city repented, God relented and withheld judgment. And do you remember what Jonah said? He said, I knew it. He was angry with God. I knew that you were a God of mercy, that you were gracious, and I just knew that you'd forgive these jerks. That's why I didn't want to come here. I knew that you were merciful. You're always merciful, and that's one thing I don't like about you, God. You have mercy on people. And I wish that you wouldn't have mercy on the Ninevites. In fact, the Jews hated the Ninevites, and we know why, because of their oppression. And God indeed was gracious. God appears to Moses when he gives the law and he says, I am the Lord, the Lord who is merciful, the Lord who is gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness. And if you put scripture next to scripture, you'll see that both of them are the same. He's a God of mercy, compassion, as well who one who gives justice when people won't receive his mercy. We have received God's mercy, first of all, in salvation, haven't we? We haven't gotten what we've deserved. We never stand before God and say, I've earned my way to heaven, now give me heaven like I deserve it, because we don't. In fact, Paul wrote to Titus, and he said, He saved us not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. There was a mother who came to Napoleon one time, the great general and ruler, Her son was indicted for a crime. The death penalty was his sentence. And she pleaded to get her son released. It was his second offense. He deserved death, according to justice. She said, Napoleon, sir, great emperor, I asked for mercy for my son. And he said, he does not deserve mercy. And she responded and said, sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask. She knew what it was. She knew the meaning of mercy. I know he doesn't deserve it. I'm asking for mercy. I didn't say give him what he deserves. And he was released. We have also received mercy just to live. Mercy isn't something for the past. Oh, yes, God's been merciful to me. Now I'm saved. You need it now. You say, how do I need it now? Because you fail. And I fail. And the devil comes and starts beating us up, doesn't he? Pounding us. And every time we fail and we say, oh, God, and we start praying, what does the enemy do? He says things like, You're going to pray now? Shouldn't you have prayed before? You think God's going to listen to you? You failed Him. Don't bring that measly prayer request before His throne. You've got no right. And so we need His mercy now. In fact, it says in the book of Hebrews, Let us then approach the throne of grace with great confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The first part of that verse says, We have a high priest who can sympathize or be touched with the feelings of our weaknesses, was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, because we have a high priest like this, who knows what it's like 
to be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Come boldly and get mercy. You need it now. I need it now. Get it and come boldly. When Jesus died on the cross, a very significant thing happened in the temple in Jerusalem. Do you remember what it was? Something was ripped. What was it? A veil. A veil that separated every man but the high priest once a year who would come into the Holy of Holies. It was a wall of separation. No one could come and have intimate, personal fellowship directly with God. Jesus died on the cross and the veil ripped from top to bottom. God ripped it, in other words, not from bottom to top. Signifying that now men could come through the veil. They didn't need a priesthood. They didn't need a representative. They didn't need someone to come on their behalf. They could come personally and have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The idea is Jesus came. He was a man. He felt what we feel. He knows what it's like. He's removed the veil so we can have fellowship with God and come boldly that we might receive mercy anytime we need it. And it says, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, literally with freedom of speech. You've got freedom. You can tell God anything. And He won't tell anybody else. That's the great thing about it. You can just lay it all before the Lord and He won't say, Gabriel, come here. Did you hear what? He'll keep it to Himself. Moreover, He'll work on your behalf to unravel the mess. That's a faithful high priest, a great, merciful high priest. Mercy is a word of pursuit. It goes after somebody. Mercy goes after a person. God's gone after you. He's pursued you. You're the sheep that's wandered. His mercy will pursue you. Which leads naturally to the next word that Jude writes about. Mercy and then peace. Peace is the natural result of having experienced God's mercy. When you sit there and you go, God, you're so good. You've forgiven me. I could come boldly and you can handle the problem. I can lay it all before you. The experience is peace. The peace of God. What are we told by the Apostle in the book of Romans chapter 5? Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the natural result of mercy. That's the natural result of forgiveness, peace. Now, that does not just mean a feeling of peace, all right? Because some of you are wondering, well, I don't have peace. I know unbelievers who have feelings of tranquility, but they're not at peace with God. I've seen people high on drugs or on alcohol go, I'm so peaceful. It won't last. (laughs) And it doesn't mean they have the peace of God. It's a feeling. And I know Christians who, in anxiety, lack the feeling of peace, yet... There is no enmity between them and God. They are at peace with God judicially. There's no gap. The veil has been removed. They can have fellowship, yet they themselves don't experience it. It's more than a feeling. It's a truth. It's a fact. Isaiah said, There is no peace, says the Lord, unto the wicked. But for us Christians, the Bible says, The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. Jesus is either your best friend or your greatest enemy. He really loves you. He loves all of you. But depending on what you do with what He did at the cross, it makes God either your best friend or He'll be against you. You see, you were born 
at enmity, at odds, at war with God. His wrath is upon you until you come to Christ. I don't care what you do, what you say, what you think. It's upon you. You dealing with Jesus at the cross to remove your sin takes away God's wrath and He deals with you lavishly, giving you, because of His mercy, His peace. There's two kinds of peace, by the way, before we move on. There is something that everybody experiences and there is something that some Christians experience, though all should. First of all, something we've all experienced, that is peace with God. If you're a Christian, you're not at war with Him. You're at peace with Him. He doesn't hold anything against you. Everybody experiences that. But not everybody experiences what the Apostle called the peace of God, which passes all understanding. I know many Christians ridden with anxiety, ridden with guilt, never at peace. Though the war's over, they've held up the white flag, they've surrendered. In their hearts, there's not a peace. A peace that passes all understanding which is the tranquility of soul that comes from trusting and resting completely in Jesus Christ. They don't experience it. And perhaps it's because they don't realize what happened at the cross. And they don't really believe they're at peace with God. They're plagued with guilt thinking, God has something against me. God's just waiting till I get around the corner and He's going to slam me. Living in fear, in guilt, and perpetual anxiety. And of course, our enemy, the devil, doesn't help much. He's not going to come around and encourage you and say, Hey, that's all right, little Christian. You'll be all right. Don't worry. Man, when you're in a state of weakness, he goes, All right. Now I can sift him like wheat, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now the key to experiencing the peace of God is what the Old Testament says. You will keep him in perfect peace when his mind is stayed, focused, welded on thee. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. That's really, I find, much of the problem. And our minds can be occupied with so many different things. School, work, our boss, our payments, the car. And there are peace thieves, aren't there? And there's, they're innumerable. If you made a list of all the things that were hurting and stealing your peace today, you probably have a long list. But he speaks here also about the peace of God. One of the reasons when I lack peace, I find that it's my mind is stayed on me. I start worrying about my life. I start wondering about the future. And as my mind is on me, my problems, my issues, my world, then I start feeling burdened and I lack the peace, the alleviation of hassle, the joy. I don't experience it anymore. Our society is training us to get our minds more and more, more and more on ourselves, to be self-conscious, to have self control and self-esteem and self-willed and be a self-made man. The magazine that swept the country in the 50s and 60s was called Life Magazine, in just a general kind of a term, life. The magazine of the 70s was called People Magazine. 
And then it made another shift. The next decade of the 80s, it was Us magazine. And now there's Self magazine. Interesting transition. Life, people, us, self. Maybe the next magazine will be Me. It's just kind of coming. It's like self-consciousness. And yet I find many people just laden with a lack of peace. Next, we graduate to that great word that closes off this verse, love. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, love is the natural outflow of new life. When you experience God's mercy, God's been so good to you. He withheld His wrath. You experience then the peace of God. The natural result is love. Not only that you experience His love more fully, but you're able to love other people. You love because He first loved us. I find that people who do not experience peace, it's because they haven't been assured of God's mercy and they're unsure of God's love for them. They don't know if God really loves them completely. But what did Paul say in the book of Romans? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Can tribulation, nakedness, sword, famine, peril? In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Listen to what Dwight L. Moody, the evangelist of the 18 and early 1900s said, I know of no truth in the whole Bible that ought to come home to us with such power and tenderness as the love of God. One of the principal attributes of God is He is love. God is love. For God so loved the world. Now, simple logic. If God loves the world, how come you doubt His love for you? Let's be more specific. Paul said he loved the ungodly when we were yet sinners. When you hated God, when you shook your fist at God and were his enemy, God loved you then. Why do you doubt it now? Why do you wonder now if while you were El Tripola, God loved you? Why would you doubt now that as a child of his, he doesn't love you still? Or he would care for you and guard you and watch out for you? If God loved the world with its rebellion and its sin. One man said, The point is not that the world is so big that it takes a great deal of love to embrace it, but that the world is so bad that it takes an exceedingly great love to love it at all. That God's love is so great, the New Testament authors had to use an entirely different word than what was used in most of Greek literature. They had to use the word agape. A supreme kind of love that is self-sacrificing and that is completely unconditional. And I know that we'll never be able to understand God's love because it's called the love which surpasses knowledge. In other words, He loves you so much that you'll never be able to figure it out. But, and we'll get to it, verse 24. No, verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now that's interesting. He assures you that you have God's love and that ought to be multiplied and increasing. And yet he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. You see, God loves you. You can't change that. No matter what you do, no matter what you think, no matter who you are, God loves you. That will never change. But you can leave a place of confidence in his love. You can doubt it. It's like an umbrella. You can't keep the sun from shining, but you can keep it from shining on you. You can put up an umbrella of sin. You can put up an umbrella of unbelief, of doubt, of anxiety that keeps you from experiencing unconditional love. 
And I'm convinced that one of the greatest lessons God keeps us coming to is that He loves us. And we think, oh, well, that's, you know, for young believers, they need to know. No, we need to know it. If you're rooted in that, you'll cast out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. There's no fear in love, the apostle wrote. John Chrysostom, 4th century, gutsy preacher, preached against sin so hard, so heavy, that he offended the emperor and the empress. And they said, we'll banish you forever. He said, you can't banish me. The world is my father's house. He says, then we'll take all of your treasure. He said, you can't take my treasure. My treasure is in heaven where neither moth nor rust can corrupt or thieves can break in and steal. We'll take you away from all your friends. He said, you can't do that either. I have a friend in heaven who is, sticks closer than a brother. You see, he was so rooted in God's love that no matter what happened to him outwardly, nothing could touch him inwardly. He was convinced of it. Mercy will lead to peace, will lead to the experience of knowing that God loves you and continues to love you, and it will allow you to love other believers. In fact, that's the idea here, is that you experience God's love to the degree that in a multiplying fashion, it says that, multiplied to you, you'll be able to shed God's love to others. On the back of the bulletin from the church where I came out of in Southern California, Chuck Smith's church, there is a little statement of faith, and these words are written. Our supreme desire is to know Christ and be conformed into His image by the power of the Holy Spirit. Is that yours? We are not a denominational church, nor are we opposed to denominations as such, only their overemphasis of doctrinal differences that have led to the division of the body of Christ. We believe that the only true basis of Christian fellowship is His agape love, which is greater than any differences that we possess and without which we have no right to claim ourselves Christians. Now, you've already experienced God's mercy. You don't have what you deserve. You wouldn't be here. You've already experienced, to some degree, God's peace. You've probably already experienced God's love enabling you to love others. But... Are they increasing? Are they multiplying? Are they abounding, as Peter wrote in his second epistle? That's the question for us, and I'd like to leave you with something that Thomas Guthrie wrote for our challenge. He said, If you find yourself loving any pleasure more than your prayers, any book better than the Bible, any house better than the house of the Lord, any table better than the Lord's table, any person better than Christ, or any indulgence better than the hope of heaven, be alarmed. Be alarmed. We need to watch, don't we? We live in days, man, with so many glitzy temptations to draw us away from the love of Christ. And so, Heavenly Father, we come and we bow ourselves before Your throne this evening. We thank You, Lord, that You've called us, that You've sanctified us, and that you still are doing that, and that we are preserved, kept. We're so grateful, Lord, that you haven't given us what you owe us. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Thank you for your mercy. And Lord, thank you that the result of that is peace with you and should be the peace of you. We thank you also, Father, that 
We experience your love on a daily basis, your fellowship. And enable us, Lord, to really love others, no matter how different they may be. And I pray, Lord, that these things would be in us and abound. In Jesus' name.